Um, so first, we are so proud of Connie. Can we get a takbir? <laughs> takbir. Allah Akbar. Yes, we're very proud of you, Connie. We're so proud of you. She was so nervous. I don't think she would have said yes if we um, didn't have the other khatiba already scheduled. So I'm like, God tricked her <laughs> into doing this. And then the other, other khatiba was never destined to make it after all. And we got her. <laughs> um, but we're very proud of you. You know, um, it's really amazing that you know, you're coming into this completely new world, really, and um, with such openness and such a genuine, beautiful heart that even though it is a struggle for you at times, you still push through it. Um, and, you know, in your doing that, you really are helping all of us because, you know, we each... I was just kind of reflecting after a couple of conversations we were having, and I think we each come into this world really with our own unique set of experiences, um, and that's really what shapes who we are and what our role is, right? And for you to come into Islam uh, at the age of, is it 60? 60, um, that is a really unique stance to be in as a convert. Um, because most converts, you know, if you convert when you're younger, you're especially vulnerable because you don't really know yourself yet. But because you already know yourself, you're coming in in a different, more empowered state than other converts usually come in. Um, so I really think that's a unique thing about you. And I, and you know, the fact that you're giving a khutbah just two years after you've converted, like, this is amazing. Um, so I really hope you take pride in, in your uniqueness and, and you know, it's going to come with that extra struggle and extra pain, but it's also a sign of the role that you get to play in our ummah. Um, so once again, takbir. Um, so who would like to be the first brave soul? There's always one person who starts us off with a question. Anyone? Abrafi? Oh, Hannah. Yay, Hannah. Assalamu alaikum. Um, it's more of a, a comment than a question. So I wanted to thank you for your courage because um, I'm not sure if you were here for the discussion circle last month with Maria Connie, but you know she's very uh, knowledgeable and she was talking about um, you know culture versus like true Islam and how like the front and back segregation or like the screen segregation or any physical barrier segregation is not like um, required. And so we were talking about like, well, what do we do? You know, like I was saying that a lot of women just don't go to the masjid because they don't feel welcomed or they don't feel comfortable. Um, but she said, you know, you have to speak up, you have to go there. And you're an example of like speaking up for our rights. And I mean, I'm obviously not that brave, but you know, hearing um, your story is very in inspirational. I have found that speaking up, you know, I was scared, and the people at the mosque that I attend are open to, you, you know, there may be some pushback, but they're always open to discuss it or what, you know, I'm not dismissed ever. And so it's just a matter of, I think, speaking up. And also, I mean, as, um, you know, people who are born into Islam, um, we also need to, you know, not just 
not just put it on the converts to have these conversations. Like, yes, they're feeling it more because they're not accustomed to it, um, but we need to also be there to support them because it's also not fair to have people come in and on their own, you know, going and having these conversations. That's, um, we need to be with one another and, and support one another. Um, so don't feel like you have to have it alone either, you know, have some um, sisters with you or brothers with you. Um, when you are going to have those conversations and make sure that you are supported. Anyone else? Yes. Asalaamu As alaikum, everyone. Thank you, Connie, for braving it and really sharing your heart with us. I, I really appreciate that. And um, I was able to really connect to um, parts of your journey. And my question is really how you mentioned a little bit about um, your whole life uh, working for equal opportunities and freedoms for women and that importance of, of that in your life. And then coming into the masjid where you had found your spiritual connection to God and then coming in to meet more Muslims and coming into a space where there is segregation and there are men in the front, women are in the back for prayer. But then you also went on to say that you understood that it's not a reflection of your position with God, or it's not a reflection of um, you as a Muslim, Muslimah. And that's very different Islamically, how God judges us based on our deeds and our intention versus how people judge us in the world and how people uh, treat us in the world in terms of... Um, um, equal opportunities or respect or value as a woman. And that's kind of hard to uh, consolidate when you deal with how you're treated as a woman in the world, but how God treats you as, you know, his servant. So, so tell me a little bit about what I want to know is a little bit about how do you consolidate that? I know that that's the struggle. That's the struggle. But how do you consolidate that? been doing this since what the equal rights amendment marching and and demanding our spaces and you know and then actually going through a period there in the 80s where it felt like the younger women were giving it up and I, and, and me feeling like are you kidding me after everything we went through you're going to go back to acting and dressing and being like that you know but it was one thing that happened for me at that interfaith iftar that I first attended I think it was a mirror but I, you know, it was such a shock for me to see women covered like that, completely covered. It was like being a foreign country. But this very strong woman took to that microphone, and there were, it turned out it was um, Jews and Muslims coming together to break their fast, and it was a day of fasting for Jews as well. I don't know how I ended up in that space, but uh, mashallah, you know, I'm so happy I was there. But I saw these women, they were strong. There's nothing about these uh, covered girls that, the day after the election last year, the, one of the very darkest days of my life, a girl at our school had her, I don't, can I call it a hijab? I don't even know what to call it. Had it ripped off her head. And I, for very, principled reasons feel like, you know, I wanted to cover at first because I wanted to feel a part of, and I wanted to, when I saw you out in public, to be able to say, hey, me too, me too. 
but for other reasons, I have this thing against covering. And um, those girls at the school, I, so I wore a hijab the rest of the semester. And we had a big uh, assembly where a, you know, one of the lawyers from downtown came down to talk about what these kids of color and people were starting to go through because there, were a, there was a big bully aspect that next day saying, we won, we won. And I made a big deal to those kids. Don't feel like these girls are being forced to cover. They're tough. Those girls are tough as nails. And they choose to cover. That's their choice. So don't feel like there's some sort of, you know, someone's putting them down or keeping them down. So that was important. And then I just wore the hijab. And it felt good to wear the hijab all year. I mean, I felt very comfortable, actually. And um, you know what? It got hot. <laughs> I, th I think that's what happened. But uh, th I mean, there's still that struggle. That struggle is absolutely going on. This Me Too thing is taking me by complete surprise because, wow. I mean, and, and it's like if, if you have a Me Too story about a celebrity, you get to see some justice. Everybody else has had their Me Too, you know? It's like, you know. Let's move on, good. We hit that block and we're not backing up now. So that feels great. Uh, well, first I wanna say that um, I am one of those people who has not been to the mosque in years. Um, and I wanna thank everyone here because I was moved to tears during the Jema prayer because I forgot the power of this like incredible collective energy. Um, so thank you for letting me be part of that. Um, as I re-engage in my faith, I wonder if there was any kind of literature that you've encountered across your journey that you found particularly kind of powerful or that you felt really kind of painted this picture of Islam and faith and, and that kind of guided you through this journey. The first book I had read after the Quran was, uh, is it Reza Aslan? His one, no God but God. That, I mean, I found that very inspirational. And some of the people at that conversation I was attending, they had looked, they were like telling me, well, you can't believe everything you're gonna read in that book. And I thought, well, I wonder why not? Because it, I mean, I just found that was a very empowering book to read. And um, reading Karen Armstrong's biography of the Prophet Muhammad he was that was a beautiful story, humanizing him in a way that I hadn't had happened before. And Destiny Disrupted has really helped me a great deal putting everything into context, because we don't grow up here in the West hearing about the entire history. And, you know, we didn't even hear about our own history, let alone what was going on in the, you know, the East and in Asia. You can't imagine what we were taught when we were in grade school about Native Americans. So um, it's just this taking responsibility to find out the facts and the history. I like to hear the history of it more than the... The hadith sometimes gets so confusing because when I first was looking up and saying, um, how do I behave at Jama prayer? And I came upon this one that said, um, men, hurry to the front of the room. Don't stay in the back with the women and children. And I read that, and I thought, I 
you know, and then I went and I was in, sent to that segregated room and I thought, well, this I did not read in the Quran. I did not read this anywhere in the Quran. So at what point, you know, I get confused about the Hadith and, you know, really, maybe that's, I, I have a hard time with that. If it's not in the Quran, I kind of have to really struggle. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, the confusion that all Muslims have today really stem from hadith, um, but not just from hadith, but from lack of knowledge of the Quran. Um, so I think the Quran is our best friend and our, our best uh, protector against that confusion and, and um, you know, the consequences of, of weak and false hadith that have made their way into the mix and have gone unquestioned for so many hundreds of years now to study the, um, the life of the Prophet at the same time content contextualizes what was in the Quran, what was in the Hadith, like what was going on in their environment and society that, that this rule came down or they did this or they did that. It, it brings like the whole big picture together because when you just read it in pockets and spurts, it is confusing. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to add to that. Uh, yeah, I read the biography of the Prophet Muhammad, and it was definitely very empowering to see like to see the cultural shift that happened um, in uh, Mecca, Medina at the time, just because like what you said in your chuppah, like, um, you know, killing baby girls was like part of society and, you know, giving women their rights, it was a huge part of uh, his revolution. Um, I'm not sure, I think it was a man. Yeah, I'm not sure, I'll have to check. Farah bought it for me. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Uh, Katiba, Connie, you and I are going to have to have a sit down with a cup of coffee and go over some of these points because um, I was just so impressed with your honesty about how you felt. You were not born and raised in a, in a Muslim country, you know, but your heart brought you to Islam. And I don't think Islam anywhere is just a stratified system where only people from a certain culture can believe there's only one God. Uh, I've had a lot of the same issues, and I can tell you honestly, uh, one of the big issues that I have is still sitting behind the men, exactly what you said, where I've seen the women get pushed further and further back, even in the women's section. But, uh, you know, I go back, my, my history is that you know, 1954, the uh, Supreme Court decision, Brown versus B Board of Education, said separate is inherently unequal. Now, this is something that has been the bulwark of this country's big problem. Uh, but I'm saying that to say there's a difference between opting to separate yourself and being separated. They are two different things. And so I would like to agitate or recommend that we move toward the women standing side by side with the men, not, not man, woman, man, woman, but you, you can draw a curtain. I don't need to see them when I'm praying. But I'm, <laughs> I'm saying this specifically because my big sister was born legally blind. And so we always, just as a point of common sense, always moved to the very front of any place we went. That's just what we did. And um, I think about people who may you know, not hear well. They need to go to the front. So what do you do about situations, and we've all been there, where you can't see, you can't hear, you don't even know when it's time to make sujud, you can't see anything, you can't, 
what is the point? Why are we doing this to ourselves? So I think we still need to address that as an issue. Uh, I was with a Sheikh, um, he's a UCLA law professor. He's written a book called um, The Great Theft, okay? And it's retrieving this extremism out of Islam. And when we prayed, the men were here, the Sheikh was here, and his wife was standing right next to him as we prayed. So it was side by side, okay? But I'm saying this to say, I think we do, we do need to not just say, well, you know, because just like this young woman said, I don't know how many years you haven't been in a masjid, but there is something very wrong when women don't feel comfortable enough to go and pray, bow down to our creator, because of something that somebody said. I didn't see it in the Quran either. I really didn't, you know. Uh, but so that's my soapbox. But I once actually just moved a partition in the masjid because I sat down and realized I can't see. And if I can't see, I can't hear because that's part of how we pick up information. I got up and moved it, you know, create a little stink. But, you know, it, they moved the mat, it, it, it left. My question to you specifically is you were raised as Catholic to what point? And at that point, when you moved away from that, how many years did you find yourself just kind of knowing you really somewhere in your spirit were Muslim, but you just had not yet taken your shahada. Could you speak a little bit on that? I wasn't really raised Catholic. My parents weren't, you know, they were Christian. And um, I was drawn to the Catholic Church. I was drawn to, I can't explain exactly what it was, but I was drawn to the mass and I was just drawn to the pageantry and the because I was a little kid, it made sense to have the rules like they were, and, and I always believed in God. I used to be a distance runner, and you know, even when I was telling myself, I don't believe in God, something would happen when you're seven miles out and you see something beautiful, you just automatically say, thank you, God. And I think, well, oh. and then um, when I get angry, I would shout at God, and I'm thinking, wow, you must believe in God because you're angry with God. But I couldn't. I couldn't find my uh, route to him. I just couldn't find that connection. And it was just that night so clear, just so crystal clear, when I just, um, it's like, well, here I am, and I'm going, I am a Muslim, and there are things I don't understand, and there are things that beyond confuse me, but they are not even close to the love and how wonderful it feels to have found this connection and be strong in this connection. So I can power through that stuff. I've been powering through that stuff all my life, but this is just, you know, such a joy, you know. Who knew? <laughs> Tuffle, you know, ride a motorcycle, I, you know, who knew this would be my path, but it is, and Thank you, because you all are such a huge part of it. Do you have children that you were raising while you were in this interim period? Mm. I used to sneak them off to mass, you know, because then I was married to someone who, you know, don't tell you. And then the priest in our parish was one of those ones on the front cover of Newsweek because he had been molesting the... So we all just kind of went our separate ways. And they have their own spiritual connections. One of them does very definitely, but I could never, I never had enough, a strong enough one of my own to guide them to anything, but they see me now and they understand that I'm not easily, you know, shifted. It takes, 
know, they know I'm sincere. Can you imagine the shock? My, <laughs> my husband of 37 years, so. So that, that was my question, Connie. Um, thank you so much for sharing, because we can all relate to this on different levels, but the, how do you handle your family? And um, I guess especially now, the Christmas holidays and all of that, how do you explain your situation as a Muslim to them? How do you, how do you have that conversation? So initially, my husband was, what are you up to now? Now, uh, now what are you doing? And that gave way to, are you going to the mosque today? And then it was, are you fasting? Because he's the cook in the family. So he started keeping the dinners until it was time to break my fast. And he's always very defensive if somebody starts saying negative things about Islam. He's very supportive. He, he, he knows that you know if my door is shut, I'm in there praying. And um, it's become part of his schedule, too. He's not going to convert. I don't think he's going to convert. And somebody told me early on, you can't be married to someone who's not a Muslim. And I thought, really? I'm not going to get a divorce after 37 years just because... <laughs> <clears throat> He's a good man, and he also joined me in this just decades of protesting about what this country has been doing in the Muslim world. So he's, um, he's a good man, he's, he's, uh, and he's supportive. He's very supportive, because he saw it, it made a positive change in me. So I was like, oh, she's, I remember the day he said, you're going out dressed like that? And then it was, oh, you're going to the mosque. So... This is just a general question, but I know that some Muslims like celebrate Christmas and others don't. So what like what is the I guess like the belief behind like both uh, viewpoints? So here's the know. deal. When I was Catholic, the most beautiful Christmases for me was when I went to midnight mass and I celebrated Epiphany and I did it it was a religious experience. All of this other stuff, I'm a um, former AP econ teacher, and all of this other stuff to me is fourth quarter padding of the GDP. It has nothing to do with anything spiritual or religious. So I have um, tried to scale down the, you know, as my kids grew up, my kids are 40 and 44 now, so it's something that has scaled back anyway, but that always to me anyway was a spiritual um, holiday. It was a holy day. So I don't have any problem. I mean, the rest of the world, it's like you can say, I'm not going to do Christmas, but Christmas has a way of doing you in this society. <clears throat> so good luck to all of you. I mean, I feel your pain. Most of the people I have met at the masjid are immigrants. And they come from someplace else, and it's a cultural thing. And bless them, they tried to dress me at first. Everyone kept giving me clothes and headscarves and, and things. And one of the things that troubles me is I have a lot of very well-meaning progressive friends who want to reach out. And they're upset about all this travel ban and Islamophobia. And you know they'll see things like this separation. It's like, ah, come on, you can't, 
that doesn't make any sense. And it's, uh, you know, I say it's a cultural thing. It's none of your business what they're doing. My husband has been really good about this all his life. He, you know, you hear like Bill Maher saying, well, look what they're doing to their women. And Mark is always saying, it's, you know, people have different cultures and different choices and mind your own beeswax. But um, to me, it is a cultural thing. And it's like for Islam, I mean, a lot of the things that go on in the mosque, to me, are cultural things. They're not, you know, and I don't want to take away anybody's culture, but at the same time, I was feeling, I'm not from there. Quit trying to dress me like you. So that's where we have to find this bridge. It's like, we're just different tribes. We're just different tribes, and people right away, they want to make teams and like we are right now with the you know the political situation in this country you find a tribe and you're gonna stick to it and we got to come out of our tribes and oh you do that well i do this let's pray i mean i had a very similar experience growing up in the mosque um i grew up in um the Garden Grove Mosque, which I believe is the biggest mosque in Southern California, um, just thousands upon thousands of people. Um, and I was the only Sri Lankan person there, right? And so I also grew up as a cultural outsider watching all the other cultures. Um, I was literally the only Sri Lankan, so I may have an outsider uh, or you know, uh, someone who was non-Muslim or maybe came from uh, a Caucasian background might have looked at all of us and thought we were all having the same experience, but I was an outsider um, just because I wasn't Arab, I wasn't Desi, I wasn't this, I wasn't that. Um, but what really I'm so grateful for being an outsider because it helped me from a very young age distinguish Islam from culture X, culture Y, culture Z. Um, and so it really was a huge gift. Um, so you're, you were saying you grew up in um, a more conservative, where was that? Saudi Arabia. Um, so I actually, I want to like kind of push back a little bit against your question because you said um, you were saying we and you were talking about culture, but you didn't specify which culture, right? Um, and, and you also said, you know, looking at a space like this, is this American Islam? Well, my pushing back is like, that's Saudi Islam, you know? And you, a lot of times, um, you know, we take for granted, and, and I think especially Arabs will take for granted that or they can't see the difference between their culture and Islam. They, they will take for granted that their culture is Islam. And so I think America is really beautiful in that, you know, in any given mosque, you're seeing Muslims from every different background. Um, and you're seeing Muslims um, who are coming from countries where the majority was Muslim. And so they are learning for the first time that, wait a second, this is Saudi culture, this is Egyptian culture. Um, and again, in this way, um, my experience was unique because Sri Lanka, my parents came from Sri Lanka um, in the 70s, and Sri Lanka is a majority Buddhist country. Um, and so again, what was unique for me was my parents never taught me Islam as if it was the way. They already had that experience of being a minority in their home country. So when they came here, they also understood that you know, it's not this monolithic um, one cultural interpretation. They, they knew that there are several different paths. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to just push back a little bit on that and, and see, um, you know, in that question, I kind of heard that you weren't accounting for whatever culture you were coming from when you're looking at, yes, this is American Islam, but that's also Saudi Islam. So, so thank you so much 
for everything you said today. Um, so where does this uh, construct come from of women having to pray behind or next to or behind a sheet or all these things? Um, I've had a lot of different experiences with, with where I've prayed all over the world. Um, alhamdulillah, Hassan and I grew up in the same masjid, and so there is a space to go side by side. But another, um, in the same county also, they at different masjids had shown the unmasked movie and it was such an opportunity for us to you know push the envelope and and get into a conversation and my mother happens to be a very outspoken woman and has always been and she was saying you know this is a problem in our masjid and we have to fix this and they were like uh they had another person kind of like at the panel instead of like a round table or a circle discussion who was just kind of defending the way it's like oh well you for example you've been able to pray and just go in and and go to the first level and pray and stuff but it's um so it's that that's that's my second part of my question but it's also not even just the praying behind or next to it's just accommodations not um, having to go upstairs, like I was disabled after my delivery and I couldn't go to the masjid for my entire postpartum year and a half because I couldn't do stairs. And there just wasn't space for me to go downstairs and, and never go to Shema. So I never could listen to khutbahs. Um, so that just accommodations for women and how even very progressive communities that we think of um, are still not at the level that women need to go to Joma and there need to be accommodations for children and it needs to be easier for women to go and access the masjid. So um, all of those conversations and, and how can we, I mean, I have my ideas about them, but how have you kind of um, broached that and so many questions in that, so <laughs> thank you. Well, at one point, I kind of did just stop going. I'm just not gonna go. And I was contacted by um, Suhail, and he, uh, he said, you know, where are you? We miss you. And I said, well, I just don't feel comfortable praying in the back of the room. And he says, I understand, but we really miss you. <laughs> so I went back, <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's just not as big a deal to me. It matters to me that I belong to this progressive mosque. They're a learning mosque and they're open to the discussion. And I've been bringing it up and talking about it and you know, maybe slowly but surely something will change. But um, I think uh, you know, a lot of my idea about how all that started is a discussion I don't feel like comfortable having and you know, here and briefly why women are covered and hidden, you know. I would hate that somebody think an unpure thought and do something they don't want to do because we provoked them with our beautiful hair, but um, that's kind of victim shaming and that's a touchy subject for me right now. So it's, that came up. So, um, we recently had something said at our chuppah that was, you know, Yes, all this Me Too stuff, but righteous women wouldn't be in those situations, you know? And I just really pulled back about that. And then I learned something else. I complained about it to a sister, and I thought, no, we're not supposed to talk behind backs and backbite either. So I made an appointment to speak to the 
man who had given the chuppah, and he was so wonderful. And he said, you know, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I knew it was the wrong thing to say. So if I hadn't have opened up and gone to speak to him face to face and aired this, he would have just gone on maybe and thought, well, I got away with that. I'm not going to do that again. But, he, you know, he was open to saying, you're right. That's victim shaming. And he, he was sorry he had said it. He, he told me what he had meant. And he was saying, you know, I don't want to sit there and police every word they say either. But, you know, don't be afraid to confront them. Trust them. Yeah, and as for the history, too, um, uh, Omar, um, one of the yeah, one of the companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, before he converted to Islam, he was known to be this really brute of a man um, who's very violent, very aggressive. Um, and then after he converted to Islam, he calmed down and was tamed a bit, but he still had this presence. Um, and part of his like aggression uh, definitely was like being uncomfortable around women, um, and women were uncomfortable around him. Um, for example, there was a hadith once where um, uh, there were a group of women who were basically with the prophet and were asking him questions and, you know, um, basically just sitting around and socializing and there was laughter and things like that. And then Omar came into the room and they all went quiet. Um, and then Omar felt so bad, and he was like, you, uh, I, actually, I think first he started shaming the women. He was like, you quiet down for me, but not for the prophet. Um, and I, I can't quite remember how it ended, but the point is that, you know, women felt comfortable with the prophet to completely be themselves and be, um, you know, laughing and smiling and joking, all that stuff, but they didn't feel comfortable around Omar. Um, and so that just kind of gives you um, the context for what his personality was like and how he was around women. Um, and he at several times said things like, if not for what you told me, you know, speaking to the prophet, if not what you told me about uh, allowing women to the uh, allowing women to go to the mosque, I would stop them from going. Um, and so um, after the prophet's death, peace be upon him, um, it was Omar who actually started this practice of having a barrier um, uh, between the men and women. Um, and so anyone who follows that is following what what Omar taught, but not what the prophet taught. So it actually, when we want to talk about bidah, I know people love to call the women's mosque bidah, but the original bidah, you know, this innovation, religious innovation, actually did not come from the prophet. It came from Omar after the prophet's death. Uh, with no barriers. Um, uh, you know, there are different reports. I mean, all we have to look at is Mecca, right? Women and men pray around the, the Kaaba um, with no barriers, and they're not in front or behind. They're just, you know, separate. Um, so that really, that's the holiest mosque in Islam, and um, that's how we pray there. Um, doesn't matter if you're orthodox, liberal, whatever, everyone prays that way. Um, but during the Prophet's time, they prayed with no barrier. Yeah. And, and they prayed with the children in the middle. That was the difference. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing from a number of people who are from immigrant families and how they practice Islam in their cultures. There's no way that anybody can fully separate religion from culture. It, it goes together, but at some point we have to decide what is actually in Quran 
what is actually legitimately Sunnah and to watch out for some of these hadith. Um, one that I just read recently, and this is from a new um, sheikh in Lebanon, that a woman should not fast unless she has her husband's permission because he may want to have sex with her and he can't have sex. <laughs> so see, her reaction is exactly why she and I need to go have a cup of coffee together. <laughs> Because there are things that I have heard, and I was born and raised right here in this country, 400 years worth of coming up from chattel slavery. There were Muslims here even before Columbus. Most people just do not know that. But from chattel slavery all the way up to the present time, and 1954, which is quite recent, when separate is inherently unequal became the law of the land. So when I hear people coming to me talking about separation, separation, it doesn't feel comfortable for me. And primarily because as African-American Muslims, trust me, there were so many things that we had to do that other women kind of sort of weren't doing. If you're in your home, my mom stayed home and worked. And didn't work, she stayed home and worked in the house. My father went out to work. My grandfather took care of the yard and the garden. That's the way it was. But if you're a woman who has to go out to work, take care of children, maybe as a single parent, all of those things that you have to deal with, you're working with men. I have hired men, I've fired men, I've supervised men. You know, I've had to talk some of them down. And then on Friday, I have to suddenly pretend that somehow I'm somewhat lesser than a male. It just, it's not gonna work in this culture. And I'm looking around this room and it's like, ooh we I believe I'm the oldest person in here. <laughs> you know, uh, so I'm saying to you as, as younger women, it's not gonna work for your families that came here. They came here for quote unquote, some measure of freedom, some measure of dunya or whatever, to bring things that weren't working across the water, bring them here plop them down and think they're going to work here, they're not. This is a different culture. And we have to find out what Islam is in this culture. And I think California, more than any place in the country, is probably ideal for us to drop the gauntlet and say, this is what Islam is here in this culture. We can come together as women. We can do whatever we want to do. I mean, how can you be a medical doctor and someone's telling you, you should be completely covered except for one eye. So you're gonna operate on somebody with one eye? Uh, no, it's not gonna work. So I'm just saying that please, as an African-American Muslim, please do not discount the reality that 400 years worth of information about how this thing right here works is valuable information, okay? So please don't shortchange yourselves and let somebody else tell you what is going to work for you, because in the marrow of your bone, as the sister said, she hasn't been to the masjid in years. How could that be? That means the masjid is not working for her. It doesn't mean that she's not a good Muslim. It just means somebody's making these decisions and they're just not working for women. So that's my soapbox. Awesome, we have time for one more question. All right, Tasneem Noor. So I'll um, thank you again to everybody. I'm going to take a slightly different um, angle, but still talk about the same thing. 
which is we're talking about like, you know, making decisions basically. When do you step up? How do you step up? Um, and in your khutbah, I heard there was a time when you were like, I just accepted it. Like, you know, it was modesty. That's how it works. And there was another time when you're like, no, I'm going to stand up and not be pushed back. So I really, in your khutbah, like, resonated with that whole journey of stages that you went through. And I'm just wondering internally what you have taken away from it, like when making difficult decisions or when trying to figure out when to talk, when to push back, like, or just step back. Um, how, do you, how do you work with that? I mean, like at the mosque where they separated the women into the room, I can't, I, I don't, it's like a choose your battles thing. The people that are going there, they need to deal with that because that's, you know, I'm a convert, I'm new. And I hear a lot of, you know, we don't need, you know, you sit down and be quiet and we'll teach you how it's done kind of a thing. So part of me is like, yeah, I'm also old. And I don't have a lot of time to mess around with sit down and, and deal with it. So I have a kind of a courage that comes with age that says, um, you know, I believe. And I'm, I know how, um, it, it's always confused me. Why are we worried about who's looking at who in the masjid while you're praying? You're praying. Who on earth, when you're prostrating, is looking around to see, and the way we all cover in there, it's like, what are you gonna, why are we even thinking about that or talking about that? So a lot of it is my choosing my battles. And I, like I say, I have, I belong to a progressive mosque, and, and I can, it's easier for me to talk to them. On the other hand, I've got a lot of, um, this is new to me, and a lot of the stuff that's new and so beautiful is so much bigger than being annoyed by cultural issues that are going on in the masjid. So I just tell you, you know, hasbala wa ni'ma wa kil, you know, it's, you know, Allah is enough, this other stuff will sort. But I have to keep true, I have to stay true to who I am and um, not let something happen that is just beyond that pale. Yeah, you talk, I, t I used to sit there and watch my students, or my former students, come wandering into the masjid late, and if they had ever come into my classroom late, and so I almost would feel like, oh, I'll bet they're just loving <laughs> But in the scheme of things, that was such a small thing, but my line I drew was, no, I'm not gonna give up my spot. I may be in the back, but I got her early to get in the front of the back. And I'm not gonna be pushed outside because you guys are all wandering in late. So, you know, pick your battles is how I have, yeah. That just reminded me, there is a hadith that says, if someone's sitting down, do not ask them to get up and take their spot. Literally, it literally says that. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, so uh, let's end with some du'as.